Welcome to Season 2 of the Y87 Podcast. I am your host, Tim Harkness. In this podcast, we will be talking to members of the Yale alumni community about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We will be exploring what they've learned, how they see the world, and what they dream of the future. This podcast is devoted to the idea that every life is remarkable, so we will be speaking to a wide spectrum of classmates and friends, exploring as many perspectives as we can. We hope you enjoy the podcast and it gives you something to think about. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. As you listen, please think about acknowledging the generosity of our guests in sharing their lives. Leave a comment, tell a friend, sign up to be a guest yourself. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, sit back and enjoy today's conversation. We hope you enjoy it. And welcome to our next episode of the Y87 podcast. Today, I am joined by our classmate, Maritza Guzman. Nice to see you, Maritza. Hi, Tim. Nice to see you as well. So happy to have you. What are you up to these days? What are you doing? Well, I am living in what I call the West West Side, also known as New Jersey. Um, <laughs> I am um, part of the sandwich generation. So I have a daughter that is a junior in high school. And so we're facing down the prospects of college and also um, an empty nest. And then I'm also helping to care for my 88-year-old mom, who is about to relocate down to Florida, where it is much less cold and much more like Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, to live with my um, with my brother. So lots of transitions going on, but all good stuff, all positive stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I, so Lisa and my wife and I and our family have, I don't know how many times we've went to Puerto Rico on vacation, like 20 times. I don't know, many, many times. We love it there. Been to Florida a few times too. I've never compared the two. Um, they're both hot, but like, that's the first time, like, <laughs> good luck. Well, I, I think of it that way only because after Hurricane Maria, quite a number of Puerto Ricans relocated to Florida. And so I sometimes uh, think of it as kind of like an, an a satellite or an annex. I'm not sure, but um, the Puerto Rican population, I think, increased after Hurricane Maria. We'll see. Uh, well, you know, it's on the horizon. So that's right. <laughs> Continued. Good luck. Good luck. So, and um, so you've been working in something called the Opportunity Agenda. What's that? Yeah, I serve on the board of the Opportunity Agenda. So that's my volunteer work. And then my day job is uh, working at a consulting firm uh, that's a B Corp and focused on uh, our clients are basically nonprofits and foundations. And that's been the the bulk of my uh, experience in my career, uh, which I can talk about in, in a little bit. But the Opportunity Agenda is an organization that's very near and dear to my heart. I've actually um, known the current president, um, Ellen Buckman, for decades. Um, and we got into uh, good trouble early in the early 90s. Uh, so worked on uh, campaigns to promote and protect um, opportunity, equal opportunity, way back in the day. And so fast forward to uh, now, and uh, uh, she asked me to join the board, and I am um, thrilled to be of service in that capacity. Um, and part of the reason that I was so excited to join the board was because I feel like their work is very much, well, I, I think of it as, as sort of the, the, a message of 
a, a positive message of how we can all move forward together and how we can uh, really promote access to opportunity for everyone, that everyone deserves a fair shot, that everyone deserves an opportunity to achieve their potential. Um, and it resonates for me um, in terms of my, my own personal trajectory and my own personal story. So I am the first one in my family to graduate from high school, the first one to go to college, and the first one to get an advanced degree. So um, it was a big, big deal <laughs> that I uh, went to Yale. And so that has shaped my perspective and my professional life and really my drive to give back, to create opportunities for other kids like me who um, maybe weren't even thinking that they could make it to Yale, but in fact can. So let me ask you this, because we've got four college-age kids, and our last one's leaving the house in August, and we've been on a bunch of college campuses as a result. And at those, on most college campuses now, you have a lot of organizations aimed at the first-generation student. I don't remember anything like that in 1983. Maybe it existed, maybe it didn't. I don't remember it. What was it like for you? So it was, I would say, definitely culture shock. I remember um, joking that I learned the words, the phrase cognitive dissonance to describe sort of going back between the Yale campus and my home in the Bronx. Um, but I also have my entire life navigated multiple worlds. Um, and so, you know, I think that that was part of it. I will say, though, that there were a number of different um, systems in place that really helped. Like what? So, for example, I had a floating counselor. And in fact, Fellow Matos, who is now the president of CUNY, was my floating counselor. And Fellow was one of those people who was just instrumental towards just helping me acclimate to Yale. I had a, you know, academic advisors. There was, and I also got very involved in the Puerto Rican uh, student organization at Yale in Despierta Boricua, um, where I made dear, dear friends that I've stayed in touch with for decades. In fact, during the pandemic, a group of us started as, hey, let's get together for brunch on a Saturday, uh, meet via Zoom, and uh, we'll see who shows up. Even prior to that, we were having yearly reunions that we affectionately called Chica Fest. So we would just, you know, and it ended. Well, I'm glad you coined that phrase. I am not going to coin that phrase. But um, but we did have these reunions. This is like fun. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Amazing, amazing friendships that um, have endured and, uh, and and we've supported each other throughout the years. But uh, but I but I will say that I, I I did feel like there were a number of different systems in place. The other thing I think that was super helpful was um, the pre freshman orientation program, uh, what used to be called PROP. And so it was just an opportunity for um, I don't can't remember if it, I don't think it was just first gen kids, but it was an opportunity to be on campus and to connect with other you know incoming freshmen before everybody descended onto old campus. Or in my case, I happened to be in Timothy Dwight, so I was closer to Paris. <laughs> And all of those different ways of helping to connect with the community, connect with um, Yale, connect with the cam- with the campus, really, really helped. I mean, one of the things that I've actually said to my um, to my daughter as she's thinking about colleges is to find your tribe. 
Yes, it, it could be anything. It could be fellow artists. It could be fellow athletes. It could be fellow singers. Whatever it is, it really helps to connect with other young people who are, you know, traveling a similar path in some way. I think that's absolutely true. You know, it's funny that with these podcasts, one of the things I've learned is that there are many people had this feeling at that very beginning, at least I know I did, and a bunch of people I've spoken to have was like, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? Everyone else seems so much more together than I am, which is probably a pretty natural feeling. If I were to go back and tell my 18-year-old self anything, it would be like, everybody feels this way. But that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk for a second about your work as a consultant with Bolthropies. What kind of work do you do and what are you trying to help your working on, thinking about what? That is a great question. So we provide strategic services to foundations primarily. So um, we have both nonprofit and uh, foundation clients. My work or my approach foundations, whether it's uh, helping them with a strategic vision going forward. Sometimes it might be helping to de- design or refine a particular uh, program area or working with individual family foundations. I know that one of our classmates also talked about uh, this notion of trust-based philanthropy, and it's something that is very, that bears repeating. So when I when I heard that and I, I listened to it, I, I was excited to hear it because it's an, evo- it's an evolution in the field. I will say that because of my own personal story, it's how I've always approached the work. So I remember when I first entered the field of philanthropy. So um, I've always had a commitment to public service. So what I will say to answer the question is that there is this evolution into trust-based philanthropy that I think is a healthy moment in the field. And one phrase that I've heard that I love and that resonates for me is to move at the, at the speed of trust. You just said a lot there. First of all, what exactly is trust-based philanthropy? So trust-based philanthropy basically is the idea that you support an organization whose mission you believe in and whose work you believe in. It's really the idea that you make the grant. It's usually a general support grant, which means, which gives the organization phenomenal flexibility. And during the pandemic, I've seen that be absolutely critical for organizations because it allowed them to pivot to what was needed as opposed to having streams of funding that were very constrained and ultimately not as helpful. It's also the idea that you're really in partnership with grantees and in partnership with organizations and that there's a certain level of humility in the work. So uh, the funder doesn't enter with preconceived notions about what should be happening in this community or that they know better. And ideally, it's really honoring and being respectful of communities. And particularly, a lot of this work happens in communities of color. So being respectful and acknowledging that often there's great wisdom in those communities and that the funder is one piece of that puzzle. One thing I am actually currently struggling with in a part of my life, and I have struggled with for a couple of years, is the the balance between a mission-driven organization's mission, because a lot of the people who run these mission-driven organizations have great passion and insight into what they're trying to get done, and the actual nuts and bolts of running it, because sometimes that's not their strength. And is that the kind of thing you get into? Because like, it's funny, I, this one organization I work with right now, 
I keep talking about the bookkeeping and they keep getting annoyed. And I was like, but if we don't actually make sure the money is properly spent, the mission's not going to work. Like we can do a good job for one, one year, two years, three years, but are we going to be here in 10? Because people are going to need us in 10. Right. So is that the kind of thing you deal with? So I think the answer to that is it depends. And it depends on a few things. It depends on the juncture in which you are in the relationship. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes there might be a grant, a get to know you grant, you know, so it's a relatively small investment of funds just so that there's an opportunity to just interact with the organization. And then the other piece of it is, I personally don't think that it's a funder's place to get into how the organization should run their business, but the funder can be a resource. So, for example, if the organization, uh, if you see that the organization needs to deepen their financial infrastructure, maybe connecting them with some training or whatever that might be. But I, but I think for me, the important thing is to be respectful of the leader of that organization, the people who work there every day and the communities that they serve, and to not assume that you know better. So it's really working in partnership so that the organization can be as strong as possible to serve to ultimately fulfill its mission. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you are enjoying the conversation. As you listen, please think about acknowledging the generosity of our guests for sharing their lives. Leave a comment, tell a friend, post about what you've heard on social media, maybe sign up to be a guest yourself. The discussions we have on this podcast are made all the richer with your participation. Now, back to the conversation. So if you're coming into a community that you're not a part of, but you want to support, I mean, I imagine really profoundly developed listening skills are important. Like, How do you think about not just the words that are being spoken, but trying to understand the entire context in which they're being spoken if you're trying to support a group of people or a mission-driven organization and you're not part of that community? Well, you actually nailed it in how you asked the question, which is to listen. And also that it isn't necessarily that, that it sometimes takes time to develop that kind of rapport. Somebody coming in from the outside isn't necessarily going to have all of the nuances of that community, but I do think that if they're open to listening and learning, that there's a greater likelihood of, of success. So what are the biggest challenges are you seeing with philanthropies as we emerge from the pandemic and hopefully not would come back and be part of the real world again? So. I'm actually hopeful that some of the changes that have happened during the pandemic may endure. And so, for example, during the pandemic, there were a number of funders that refined their, um, basically stripped down their requirements and made it as simple as possible for organizations to apply for funds. So that was one. So they lessened the hoop jumping. The second thing that happened was that um, there was a lot more flexibility in the funding. And so, for example, groups who that had program-specific um, funding could actually convert their grant into a general operating support. And I know from some of the organizations that I've worked with, it was everything from, hey, we're an after-school program, but the schools are closed, and what our kids really need is food. 
So we are actually now a community hub and kids or their families can come and pick up food because that's, I mean, there was a huge food insecurity issue, particularly across New York City and across, obviously, um, a number of, of places. Or things like our young people are needing to um, access online schooling, but they have no access to Wi-Fi and they have no Chromebooks. So we actually need to make that happen in order for them to continue with their studies. So all of those are just two examples of ways that organizations just stepped up um, during the pandemic and that flexibility allowed them to, to do that. I hope that that flexibility continues. I think we're in, in an, an area in a, in a time of evolution and the unknown. Nobody knows, right? what's going to happen after the pandemic and how things are shifting. My own gut is that there are some seismic shifts that will happen that are really unclear right now, whether it's in the workplace or in other areas. And so I think that nonprofit organizations will continue to adapt to what's needed in their communities. And so that's a conversation with their um, funders and their supporters. <laughs> are there any other positives you saw coming out of the, um, the pandemic in your world? I think overall, you know, and, and I'm sure there are other people who have, who have seen this, but the openness to just use technology. And so I think that all of us now are much more comfortable of necessity with things like a video meeting or a video convening. So, for example, even with, with site visits, um, I worked with a foundation that uh, really was trying to be mindful and respectful of how much nonprofits had on their plate. Um, they were just trying to meet the needs in their communities in an ever-changing environment. And so at first they paused their site visits and then they moved to some video site visits, which really just allowed flexibility too. So it was more informal, but it was still an opportunity to continue learning about the work on the ground and learning about what was needed. I think that the pandemic has also maybe the best way I can describe it is, is say, you know, I think that sometimes people are kinder and gentler. And what I mean by that is I think that, you know, there's a recognition that we're all human beings and we're all trying to do the best we can under, you know, changing circumstances and sometimes difficult circumstances. Yeah, I think the other thing uh, along that line is, like, I've been into so many people's homes and people have been into mine. Yeah, I'm sorry. What I would say is that we've also met other people's kids and cats and dogs. <laughs> There's something about cats and keyboards and Zoom. There's always, <laughs> if there is a cat in the room, they will find a way to come into the frame. That's true. That is true. I was in, uh, we just opened our offices sort of officially last week and i was back in the office and one of the younger people said i don't recognize you without your dog how's ginger doing so yeah i think that's right and i think that part of that gives us i think more potential for more connection and also a little bit more empathy because sometimes you look in your own background and say oh my place is a mess because i'm just holding on with my fingernails today and so then you see it in somebody else you give them a little bit more grace i think that's definitely right so let me ask you this, like, what, what are your hopes for the next, you know, we're about to have our 35th reunion. So if you play the tape forward to the 50th reunion, we've got like 15 more years, we can get some stuff done and come back. I don't know, really, I really feel that way. We're at a point in our lives where, you know, we still have 
thankfully I have, you have a uh, aging parent to, to be as part of our life, but you know, we also have kids who are leaving and um, have built up skills and know-how over these 35 years. Like, what would you want to get done? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is when I first started my career, I was working specifically on educational educational opportunities for low-income kids, um, again, for obvious reasons. And, you know, through the you know, vagaries of my career, I haven't been focusing on that as much, but my initial reaction is I'd, I'd like to get back to that. I'd like to more, you know, create more opportunities for kids who are, are bright and just, and just need a, a break. The other thing I would say is part of, I love these podcasts for what we're learning about one another. And it feels like it would be wonderful for us to continue connecting over the next 15 years and maybe working on projects together, whatever that looks like and however that evolves. Amen. That would be great. So, you know, I think Yale over the last couple of years has um, admitted probably the most diverse classes they've ever admitted in whatever metric you want to use for diversity. So if you had the chance to speak to the current Yale students who might have come from uh, Puerto Rico, or they've come from a, they're in a first generation, or they're a low socioeconomic group, or they feel other in some way, and they had them all in the room, and you're on the stage, what would you say to them? I would say that you belong. I would say that you're here for a reason and for a purpose. I would say make the best of it, make the most of it. There are amazing resources. I wish I could actually go back to my 18-year-old self with what I know now. Because <laughs> I feel like I would, I would take so much more advantage of what was there. Oh my God, isn't that true? I would, oh, completely yeah. agree. I, I mean, and I treasure my time at Yale. I really do. It was hard in parts, but you know that makes us stronger. So I, I would say that. I would say, you know, try new things, be bold, and it's okay if it makes you nervous. It's okay if it's not perfect. And it's okay if it actually doesn't work. That's how you learn. Very inspirational. I would probably add, go talk to the person who looks like you've never met anyone like that before. Absolutely. Because some of the best interactions I had looking back on it were like when I talked to someone who was completely different from me. Stay curious. Absolutely. Stay curious. This is great. So are there classes at Yale or, or academic experiences that you had that were particularly profound? You've talked about your social and, and cultural experiences, but was there anything in the classroom or anything you read that really shaped you? I will say that um, I was fortunate enough to take a class with uh, Gloria Watkins, who wrote his bell hooks and recently passed away. And mm-hmm. that class was uh, transformative. I remember that she made space for talking about race and class and privilege. And I was absolutely in a classroom with people who were very different and had very different backgrounds and, and life histories. And it was, it was instructive and I learned a lot and, but I think contributed a lot as well. And so I still think back on that and think that it was one of the more transformative experiences uh, during my time at Yale. Interesting. And does that still resonate in your life today? I mean, we're going through this big national discussion about privilege and equity and inclusion and all these things. And I just find it, A, you've studied it, and B, you've straddled all these different worlds. Like, does it still echo? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it always comes up in my work. I mean, philanthropy by its very nature is a field that exists because of privilege, right? And because of inequity on some level. So it's always uh, front and center in the work that I do and in how I live my life. Let's ask some lightning round questions, some quick answers. And sometimes, sometimes the answers aren't that quick. So I don't get too persnickety about it. All right. If there was one Puerto Rican food that you would serve at our reunion, what would it be? I think it would have to be off the top of my head, arroz con gandules, which is basically like just a, a rice dish, savory, yummy, and comforting. So not the mofongo. I didn't know if you were going to go with that. Mm, I don't know. That's my you know, idea. It's hard to pick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many yummy things. That's right. I ask a lot of food questions because food is important to me. Um, and I think it's one of the best expressions of culture and joy that we can have. So if you ha- were going to frame a conversation to have at the reunion, what would you want to frame it around? Tim, that's a great question. No, we're going to be together for two days. What do we want to talk about? So if I were framing it, I I think it would be great to first connect with other folks who are looking at different sides or facets of a particular issue. You know, are you working on social justice? Are you working on equal access? Are you working on economic inequity? Are you working in the legal profession? Um, it would be interesting because it feels, I always feel that at conferences or even reunions, it's a little like atoms colliding, you know, uh, and some of that is wonderful, that kismet, those conversations that just, you know, spring up organically. But if we're thinking about the next 15 years, I think it would be helpful also to just connect with other folks who are working on, I just think of it as a prism, you know, those different facets of a particular prism. Um, so. That's how, that's, that's, that's what I got. <laughs> All right. And are, are there any, um, on the same lines, if people have had their career in whatever business or finance or law or medicine or whatever, and they're going to look at retirement and then a second act, is there any area of philanthropy you think people should focus on? Is there a way to think about how, what, what you can contribute? That's a great, another great question. What initially comes to mind is, the notion of, of collaborative funds, which I really didn't talk about much, but I also just philosophically believe in we go further when we go together. Um, and and I and part of the work that I've done has also been a lot around foundations specifically pulling putting their money together for for greater effect. Um, Individuals can certainly do that as well, whether it's giving circles. And I know you ha- we had a classmate talk about that. So putting their money together. And I think that, that when you have a collaborative effort, you also learn more because then it's not just your perspective or your you know particular approach or interest. You're really getting informed by different people or, you know, um, in a collaborative fund, it's different, different foundations. And so it's, it, it's it's much more of a learning environment, and I think that that's all to the good. So, last question: If people are thinking about, I want to go to Puerto Rico, uh, which I hi- highly endorse, what would you have them do? What I love about the island is it is so incredibly diverse. So um, you can have the 
sort of more city experience if you're just in the San Juan area. You know, there's obviously El Yunque, which is actually one of my favorite places to be. The the rainforest. It's the for those who don't know, that's a rainforest. The The only rainforest, only rainforest, I think, in the United States. That's correct. And then, you know, if you go onto the West Coast, then there's there is a surfer, um, you know, culture out there. But the island itself is just beautiful. Um, We did what's called the Ruta Panoramica, the panoramic route, and and just mountain roads going through clouds cover. I mean, it's just breathtaking. So it's really take your pick and choose your own adventure. That's right. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale college class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is Abula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, Maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is Abula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.